last battle is C.S. Lewis's end to the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's Narnia in its last days, kind of like the book of Revelation is for our world. Okay? Is this the last Narnia book to be published? Yep, it is. And the last battle gives us a glimpse into C.S. Lewis's eschatology. What on earth does that word mean? Can anyone answer that word, that question? What does no, not ecclesia, not not that, not ecclesiology. You're close. Eschatology, the study of the last things. That's right. And so we're going to be studying the last things in the world of Narnia before Narnia comes to an end. And so with the last battle, Lewis brings everything back full circle for us. Uh, remember, he began with the creation account in Narnia and the magician's nephew. And then in the last battle, it ends with uh, the last judgment before the end. And in between, Lewis has addressed all of the great themes of the Christian faith. He's addressed sin, salvation. He's addressed revelation. He's addressed uh, what it looks like to, to live before the face of God in the world faithfully. And he's taught all of these doctrines not through some dusty old omnibus book, not through some dusty old textbook, but through story. Through story, he has taught these things. Um, and in the last battle, he brings everything to a wonderful conclusion. And, uh, and it's very, very satisfying to finish the whole Chronicles of Narnia series. And unfortunately, finishing this book marks the end of our time with Narnia in this class. Wah, wah, wah. But you should never, ever really be done with Narnia for your whole lives because you can always read them again and you can always find new insights and you can always go deeper and further into the water. Um, so who are the main characters in the last battle? Anyone name one? Raise your hand. Marie. Pull, yeah, okay. I don't remember the weird name. Uh, the main character. Isaac. Well, sure. Besides him. Uh, all right. Let me let me narrow it down a little more. Those are all true. Uh, what's the king's name in the last battle? The last king of Narnia. Starts with a T, right? Huh? Yeah, it's King uh, Tyrion. He is the last king of Narnia, and he is a central character in this book. And we have Jewel, who's a unicorn. We have uh, the human children who are called from our world, Earth, to go and help them. Uh, who are they? Eustace and, who? Wait, it Eustace and Jill. D- yeah, no. Eustace and Jill, who by this time are a few years older uh, than when we saw them in the silver chair a few books ago. And we have the evil ape named Shift, who is responsible for this great deception in dressing up Puzzle the Donkey as Aslan and claiming that Aslan has returned. Uh, we have Rishta Tarkhan, who's a, a Kalorman warrior who helps uh, to arrange the betrayal of Narnia. We have Pragan the Dwarf, and uh, Pragan is the only dwarf that stays loyal to Aslan and Tyrion. And we have other dwarves in the book as well, and they kind of serve as a one-character unit. The dwarves are a character. Okay, and then we have Ameth, who's a Kalorman warrior who's been accepted by Aslan, and, and we have many of the old characters that we saw in the other books come back in this book as well. And of course, we have Aslan, who's the really the central figure in this story and all the stories of Narnia, and he's the central figure whether he's physically present in the scenes or not. Okay, so what should we? What worldview things should we look out for when we read this book? 
Well, there are three important issues to address as we read and study the last battle. Uh, the first issue is eschatology, eschatology, or C.S. Lewis's doctrine of the end of history. Okay. Now, in order to talk uh, about this, we have to talk about a few eschatological assumptions that many contemporary Christians have concerning our world. So, although Christians differ about many different things when it comes to eschatology, there is not very much disagreement among folks when it comes to Narnian eschatology. It seems pretty plain. But what we assume about the end of our world is no doubt going to show up in Narnia, and this was true for Lewis as its author as well as for us as his readers. And one of the most popular views currently, in our world of course, of eschatology is the view of premillennialism. Anybody heard this word before? Premillennialism. Uh, any of you think, I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Pre- it's okay. We're going to explain it in just a second. So, premillennialism. Well, premillennialism, if I could say the word, is characterized by a belief in a secret rapture of the church. This is a form of it. Secret rapture of all Christians, a seven-year tribulation, and, right, and the bodily return of Christ just before he begins his reign in Jerusalem in body, presently there for a thousand years. And the reason it's named premillennialism is because uh, the view holds that Jesus is coming back before the millennium. Written, written about in Revelation 20. Hence the word pre. Pre means before. Pre-millennialism. And premillennialism is so popular today among Christians uh, in the United States that it barely even needs mentioning. That's just the water that we swim in. Uh, every church, uh, every Protestant church that you go to around here probably has uh, an eschatological view uh, that's uh, pre-mill. Okay? I'll just shorten it to that. Pre-mill is easier. Okay. And there's a lot of Christian fiction that has a premillennial worldview. Uh, the Left Behind series. Anybody heard of those? I remember those. I remember yeah. So Tim LaHaye and I forgot the other guy's name that wrote it. Uh, those were very, very popular books um, back in the, the 90s. I like and, uh, and, and the reason that I mention it right now is because, you know, the whole idea of premillennialism, because it's so tempting if you've been trained in this, in this view of eschatology, you're going to be trained to read that into Narnia towards the end. Okay? But I don't think there, there's any trace of premillennialism in Narnia at all. But you may be tempted to read it in, so don't do that. Okay? Another millennial view of the end times that's out there right now is postmillennialism. Now, this is the belief that the gospel will conquer the nations of the world and that the world will come to general faith in Christ before the end of human history. Uh, But, for example, in Narnia, because the empire of Kalorman doesn't come to faith in Aslan before the end, I don't think this is what we're going to find in Narnia either. I don't think we're going to find post-millennialism in Lewis's eschatology in Narnia. So, this leaves one position left, at least the main one, and that is ah millennialism. Ah millennialism. Aha, right. And that's the view that Christians rule with Christ in a spiritual sense all throughout the course of the church age. 
But this spiritual rule isn't necessarily translated into any historical rule of the faithful believers in Christ in time and on earth. So we spiritually rule with Christ, but right now we don't. The church doesn't physically rule with Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? There's a spiritual thing going on. All spiritual. Okay? <clears throat> now, in some versions of amillennialism, history goes from bad to worse, and then it eventually ends in a dark, pessimistic disaster that's very similar to premillennialism. Okay? Um, and in other versions of amillennialism, history goes on just like it always has uh, with both good guys and bad guys on both sides, with each one becoming more self-aware of their goodness or their badness. And because of that, the conflict between the good guys and the bad guys intensifies, but it's not really resolved until the end of history. To me, this is the view that C.S. Lewis seems to take, and uh, maybe we can call it an optimistic amillennialism. I don't know. I, maybe I prefer the term postmillennialism light, right? So that, that'd be a better description. He's postmill light, all right? And so, uh, but I think we should identify this as some sort of amillennialism because in the end, the whole world is not brought to faith in Aslan, okay? Uh, but there are several reasons. It doesn't sound very optimistic, but it is. There's several reasons for calling this optimistic, uh, first, although the Narnians, the faithful Narnians, lose the last battle, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, Aslan ends the world almost immediately after that. So the good guys lose, and then Aslan ends the world. It's done. Uh, in other words, Ker Paravel is completely conquered by this sneak attack from Kalorman, but, uh, but how long does Kalorman really get to enjoy the fruits of their victory? Not very long. Two seconds. Two seconds, yeah. So Aslan takes it away almost immediately. And the intervention is so quick that it's almost a mistake to say that the Narnians lost the battle. And uh, the second reason is more telling. The history of Narnia runs for 2,555 years. From creation, from the beginning to the end. Uh, anybody remember who... the who was the first king and queen of Narnia? Remember their names? Oh, oh. Oh, oh. Uh, huh? Helen? That's the queen. Who's yeah, the king? Uh, the carriage driver. That's true, yeah. His name is Frank. <laughs> very uh, very um, ordinary names. Not very memorable names. And they are made king and queen of Narnia in year one. And... Who was the last king of Narnia? Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion. And he is the last king in the year Narnia falls. So that history, the history of Narnia, is punctuated with two very difficult periods. So we're familiar with both of them. The first one is the White Witch, the season of the White Witch, in which she rules Narnia under her tyranny from the year 900 to the year 1000. And then in 1998, Narnian time, the Telmarines invade Narnia. And even though their ruler isn't as bad as the White Witches, it's still, it's still pretty terrible, and it's rough on the old Narnians. And, and this line of rulers... You all right over there, buddy? Yeah, the pen flew. 
Okay, I know, you're, you're fidgeting a lot. So, yeah, calm down. Okay, so in this line of rulers, beginning with Caspian I and ending with Miraz, that lasts 305 years. And so these are some of the rough times in Narnia. And uh, combine those rough times, they measure out to 405 years if you put them all together. So what is Narnia like for the other 2,150 years? Well, fortunately, Jewel tells us in chapter 8 of The Last Battle. I'm going to read a, an extensive quote here, so be sure to keep listening. Don't tune out. Quote, but the unicorn explained to Jill that she was quite mistaken. He said that the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve were brought out of their own strange world into Narnia only at the times when Narnia was stirred and upset. But she mustn't think, mustn't think it was always like that. In between their visits, there were hundreds and thousands of years when a peaceful king followed peaceful king till you could hardly remember their names or count their numbers. And there was really hardly anything to put into the history books. And he went on to talk of whole centuries in which all of Narnia was so happy that notable dances and feasts or at most tournaments were the only things that could be remembered. And every day and week had been better than the last. And as he went on, the picture of all those happy years, all the thousands of them, piled up in Jill's mind, till it was rather like looking down from a high hill onto a rich, lovely plain, full of woods and waters and cornfields, which spread away and away, till it got thin and misty from distance. End quote. Now this doesn't sound very pessimistic to me, Right? Sounds pretty optimistic. It sounds so nice. What do y'all think? Yeah. And so it's very significant that the two times that Narnia falls under wicked and despotic rule are in the middle of the history of Narnia with all of these wonderful centuries of peace on either side of those turbulent times. In the last king of Narnia, he is a faithful king who fights a difficult battle. And he fights it well, and he serves Aslan as a true prince should. And when Tyrion finally meets Aslan in his country, in Aslan's country, what, what is Aslan's country? Uh, what can we compare that to in our world? Heaven, right. So when Tyrion finally meets Aslan in his country, um, <clears throat> it is said that Tyrion came to him trembling. He was scared to death. And he flung himself at Aslan's feet. And what did the lion do? Did he growl growl at him and eat him up? No, he kissed him. He kissed him and he said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia who stood firm at the darkest hour. So Tyrion is praised. He's highly praised and commended, uh, which means that he was faithful to Aslan to the end. He persevered. And, And not only he, but all of the Narnians and the Arkenlanders were faithful to Aslan to the very end. Now think about this. If Miraz would have been king uh, instead, what do you think would have happened? There would have been a long line of tyrannical kings in front of him, and then the end would have come. And that would have reflected not an optimistic amillennial view of history. It would have represented a pessimistic pessimistic one. Right. Exactly. And so, or if Narnia would have gone uh, the route that Charn went, where all good kings and queens were at the beginning of history and the evil ones came later on at the end, then we could say C.S. Lewis was pessimistic about the end of human history. But I don't see that 
And so we could call uh, Lewis an optimistic amillennialist or postmillennialist light. So <clears throat> the second issue when it comes to the last battle is going to involve a philosophy. Now, in your introduction, you read about Plato, right? Plato. And uh, we're going to understand in just a few moments uh, how C.S. Lewis, uh, what he believed uh, about the way reality worked and how that relates to Plato. And so after the friends of Narnia are inside of the stable door, that's the portal that leads to Aslan's country, what do they do? Well, they spend a moment to try to even figure out where they are. Like, what happened here? Right? And after they do that, uh, the Lord Diggory says this. He says, You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. It's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. Bless me. What do they teach in these schools? And so... And since this humanities class, we, we, this constitutes a significant part of your schooling here, we don't want to fall under Lord Diggory's approach. And that means we have to talk about Plato for a little bit. Okay? Um, now, there are many aspects of Plato's thoughts and philosophies that show up in, uh, in Narnia and show up in C.S. Lewis's writings. Uh, but we only have time to talk about a few of them along with uh, C.S. Lewis's slight modifications to Plato's philosophies. And, uh, and soon, uh, in a few, maybe in a few weeks, I'm trying to remember exactly how, long, how far this is away, maybe next month, I think, we're going to dive more deeply into Plato's work and his philosophy uh, later on. But for now, we, we need to uh, understand a little bit about Plato so we can understand uh, Lewis's uh, worldview a little more. So, Plato, old philosopher, he wanted to know what made reality what it is. So, if you look at a chair, this chair right here, he wanted to know what made a chair a chair. He wanted to know what made an apple an apple. Uh, you know, philosophers like to do that sort of stuff. And in the, in the end... Uh, his answer, the answer that he came up with, was that every chair in the world partakes of ultimate, quote, chairness somehow. This, there's an ultimate chair out there, which all other chairs take its form and model from. There's the ultimate chair that exhibits the highest level of chairness that it could ever receive. So like a God chair? The God chair, the ultimate chair, yeah, sure, sort of. So, and, and it's like that for everything. Uh, it's like that for apples, bananas. There's a banananess out there. There's treeness that every tree models itself from. There's bookness. There's jacketness. All of that. And that's how Plato believed the world worked. So, all of these ultimate things from which all other things get their forms are from a place called the realm of the forms. Now, it's a, it's a spiritual place, and uh, it's the ultimate spiritual place in Plato's mind. And so we have a dichotomy already. We have the physical world, and then we have a spiritual place. And in Plato's mind, which do you think is better, the physical world or the spiritual world? The spiritual world, yeah. So, <clears throat> so let's see now how C.S. Lewis inserts his version of this philosophy into Narnia. So the Narnia they had all known and loved 
according to uh, Diggory at the end, was not the real Narnia. It wasn't the ultimate Narnia. So Narnia outside the stable doors was just the, just the, um, the, the copies. It was the shadow lands. And the land inside the stable door, that was the real Narnia. Okay, so we see some Plato right here, right? So further on, the Narnia that they had fought for and died for was only what it was is be, uh, because of its participation uh, in the Narnia of Aslan's country. So this appears to be just straightforward Plato, okay? So no adjustments made. But then Lewis begins to throw some curveballs in this philosophy, and he adjusts some of Plato's philosophy in the world of Narnia. First, uh, with C.S. Lewis, the process of forms versus substance doesn't seem to stop. It keeps on going. And you notice that Aslan keeps growing bigger and bigger as the ones who serve him keep growing and growing. Not only growing up physically, but growing in their love and faith in him. Right? Y'all notice that throughout the books? He keeps getting bigger. And, and this keeps on going forever, obviously. And so Aslan, to the people's minds, those that are faithful to him, Aslan will never stop growing. He will continue to get bigger and bigger. And so we can see that that further up, further in motif never really stops. And when they get to the center of the true Narnia and enter the garden there, they find out that the garden is bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. Doesn't seem to make sense, right? But this is Plato in action, or Lewis's application of it. So in Lewis's application of Plato, there is no upper story world where all the forms are, where all the, the, the ultimate tree is, or the ultimate chair in which all other chairs get their, their form and likeness. No, there's no upper story with this, and there's no lower story with all the shadows. Instead of a a story, you know, five-story building or a two-story building, instead, what are we dealing with, his view of reality? We're dealing with something like an onion, right? Where you peel back layer after layer of this infinite onion, and we discover as we peel back the layers that each ring, when we get to it, is bigger and more real than the previous one. Could you imagine peeling an onion and the, and the peeling under it, the skin under it is bigger than the skin you just took off? Doesn't seem to make sense, huh? But that's the world that C.S. Lewis is putting forth. And so one realm of forms replaces another realm of forms. And each realm of the forms that we pass out of falls behind us into the Shadowlands. And so, and look, there's nothing wrong with the Shadowlands per se. It's just that there is more reality in front of us. So this is a, a very glorious and mystical vision of reality. And, uh, you know, try to draw that one on a piece of paper. I don't, wouldn't know how to even describe it, right? So that's C.S. Lewis's spin on Plato that we see in Narnia. Uh, another contribution C.S. Lewis makes to this vision is found in his his Christian view of matter. You know what I mean by matter? What is matter? Uh, it's Physical science, space, folks. Sure, any physical substance, tangible substance that takes up space. Right, exactly. And so uh, C.S. Lewis has a very Christian view of matter. Now, the Greek or Platonistic or Hellenistic 
uh, tendency uh, was to view ultimate things rationalistically as in uh, it can only be understood by the mind uh, and only the realm of mind or spirit was the only thing that was real. So the spiritual was real. It was more real than the physical. Okay? Remember, spiritual good, physical bad. That's, that's Greek philosophy in a nutshell. So, in other words, in the realm of tangible matter, what do I mean by tangible matter? Things that you could touch, you could see, um, you could smell, taste, things you can hear. All of the, this realm, this physical realm, uh, has, that has physical properties, that tangible matter was viewed as suspect and suspicious. Um, and the Greeks viewed the physical world with contempt. Okay, Put it another way, quoting another philosopher, uh, quote, In Plato's realm of the forms, it is hard to imagine discovering that the ultimate chair was any good for sitting in. End quote. But in Lewis, though, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. The further in you go, the more solid everything gets. Remember, with Plato, the further in you go to reality, the less solid things are. The more things turn to spiritual stuff. But Lewis is the exact opposite. And so he he displays the same perspective in The Great Divorce, where heaven is inhabited by the solid people, and hell is inhabited by the ghostly spirits. And Lewis, you know, being a Christian through and through, he's not embarrassed by matter at all. Greeks were embarrassed of the physical world and of themselves and physically. But not C.S. Lewis, not Christians. We should be happy about matter. Why should we be happy about matter? Because God gave it to us. Huh? Because God gave it to us. That, yes. And how does this relate to Jesus? Jesus came down and uh, took the form Exactly. Jesus was, I mean, he, God is spiritual, who doesn't have a body like us. But God, in the Son, took on a, spirit, a physical body. He became matter for our sake in His incarnation. He had a human body like us. And so that's the Lord taking on that visible, tangible body. God wasn't uh, ashamed of... Uh, in the sun, taking on a physical body and being physical, why should we, right? And and he still has this body. He still rules uh, and sits at the right hand of the Father with his physical body. He didn't just disappear and then turn into a spiritual floaty thing. No, he still he still has flesh and blood like we do, and he still rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father like that even to this day. So we we shouldn't be ashamed of the physical. Yes. Do what? How does that work if they're the same person? If who's, what's the same person? God and Jesus. Like the Trinity in general? I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know how it works. But the Bible tells us that's how it works. I really don't know. That's a great question. That's a question that we'll talk more about. Well, actually, we talked quite a bit about it last year. Remember when we read Athanasius? For those that were the eighth graders, we read Athanasius in, on the Incarnation. He talked about all of that. And so he kind of answered that question. Um, and seventh graders, you'll get, a, you'll get a taste of that next year. So anyway, so Christians think physical is good. Is spiritual bad? No, not necessarily. Um, but we shouldn't, I don't think that's something we should, we shouldn't pit them against each other. 
I think there is a spiritual realm and a physical realm, and Christians should be happy about both of those things. Okay? So, getting back to C.S. Lewis, he's pointing us somewhere in Narnia. He's pointing us to a view of the world uh, that he thinks we need to have. Um, You know, he's not giving us, obviously, he's not giving us an actual sketch of what the afterlife is supposed to look like, right? But he's pointing to a real biblical principle here, and it's this. Whatever we think of the afterlife, we must think of it as being more real than what we experience now, not less real. Does that make sense? Remember, Greek philosophy, they view the afterlife as... Uh, being um, maybe less real, less solid, and that's good. That's a good thing. But not Christians. We are to view things as being more real. And for the rest of eternity, now I know there will be a period where we're in heaven and we won't have our physical bodies, but for the rest of eternity after the Lord comes back, uh, are we going to live in some spiritual floaty place with angel wings and harps and halos? floating around on clouds? Yes. Will we be translucent or transparent? Will will we be able to see through each other like ghosts? No. What are we going to have whenever human history comes to an end? There's a resurrection. And what do you think is resurrected? Physical bodies. Us in our physical bodies. And we're going to have those glorified physical bodies for the rest of eternity. So... You think we should be ashamed of physical bodies? Nope, we shouldn't be. This is how God created us. And that is more real than any second story, ultimate chairness, weird floaty place that every chair gets its form from. No, that's not correct at all. Now remember, Plato was a pagan. He had no Christian concepts or uh, he had no Christian framework to work from. So uh, as a pagan, he was doing the best he could to try to make sense of the world. And, uh, you know, some people come up with some weird stuff. So, anyway, whatever we love here on earth, in this life, right now, assuming it's worth loving, assuming it's good to love, uh, we're going to find its counterpart in the resurrection. And it's going to be better. So, in other words, uh, good things are, in a certain sense, truly good things are indestructible. They'll never go away. Nothing of true value is ever going to be uh, ultimately lost. And this is a wonderful Christian doctrine. And the Lord tells us that uh, the last judgment is going to include, among other things, any account for any glass of water that was given for Jesus Christ's sake. And that he promises that things aren't going to get less real as we make our way into heaven and the afterlife. They're going to get more real. And there's, not, there's no such thing as a dichotomy between spiritual and physical, and that physical is ultimately bad. No, that's nonsense. The Greeks believe that, and many in our world still, still drift towards that sort of Gnostic, dualistic worldview, and that's wrong. It's bad. But in Christ, everything is going to become more real, more physical, and more spiritual, and all of that is going to be to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, all the, the entire world that you made. Thank you for giving us physical bodies and enabling us to live in a physical world. That's all for your glory. Lord, help us to remember um, that uh, you are a good God. And all of the world and its course and trajectory and its history 
is all under your sovereign control. And Lord, help us to submit to that and help us to be hopeful uh, about the end and the world to come and the resurrection. Help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.